Welcome to this Ubula audio presentation of a Rick Brandt science adventure story, The Wailing Octopus, by John Blaine. Volume 7, Chapter 15 How Sings the Gay Sardine Rick and Scotty held a hurried consultation mouth to ear. We have to get him, Scotty whispered urgently. He held up the spear gun. I've only got one shot, though. Rick's instinctive reaction was the same. They had to rescue Tony. But they also had a job to do. Wait, he cautioned. They don't know we're here. Tony wouldn't give us away. If they find out, we'll lose the pictures. And we may make it worse for Tony. Let's just stay right here and watch. Scotty subsided. They floated motionless, eyes on the boat, peering to penetrate the mist. The rain had let up somewhat, but the air was far from clear. Rick would have given the treasure they sought to be able to hear what was being said on the boat. The three frogmen were all facing Tony, and the conversation seemed to be pretty animated. Then, as he watched, the boat pulled up anchor and moved north. They're taken into their house, Scotty gasped. The boys swam frantically for the shore recklessly crossing the reef without regard to the danger of cutting themselves on the sharp coral. They reached the beach and shed tanks and equipment under the palms, and then raced for the frogmen's house. They could see the lights of the boat as it rounded the northern tip of the island, and lying among the palms, they watched it tie up at the pier. Tony and the three frogmen got off and walked down the pier. Rick strained to see and could not find any sign that Tony was covered by a gun, but that wouldn't be necessary anyway since he was outnumbered three to one. The four marched up to the front door of the frogman's house and stopped. The boys were prone under a palm less than twenty feet away. One of the frogmen said, Let me get my jacket. I am chilled. Then we'll walk you home. There was something really odd here. Rick nudged Scotty, and they backed slowly away. When they were sure they could not be seen, they stood up and ran on silent bare feet through the palm grove, circling to approach their own cottage from the rear. At the back door, they paused. Now what? Rick said helplessly. They're bringing him home? Why? I wondered about that while we were running. I think they're bringing him home to check up on us. He must have sold him some kind of a yarn. But Steve's tail will recognize us. Not if we're in bed, Scotty answered quickly. We'll pretend to be asleep. Come on. Just a minute. Rick hurried to the shed and got two short hand spears. He handed one to Scotty. Here, have a bad fellow. A few minutes later, they heard footsteps and voices on the front porch. The door opened. A strange voice said, your friends don't seem to be here, the voice hardened. I thought you said they were. They're probably in bed, Tony replied mildly. We go to bed right after dark because there's nothing to do. Except stick your nose in other people's business, the harsh voice snapped. Tony replied tartly. I've already apologized for letting my curiosity get the better of me, okay? I'd like to see the bedrooms, a third voice said. Rick thought it belonged to the man they had taken off Steve's tail. He lay motionless as a form blocked out the lamplight from the living room. In a moment, the voice said, 
They have a sleep all right. They must sleep soundly. Young men do that. Tony sounded relieved. Rick grinned to himself. The archaeologists couldn't have known they weren't dead, but his stall had worked. All right, we'll be going. But keep in mind, the most stupid thing anyone can do is dive alone, even in the day. At night, it's worse than stupid. It's sheer insanity. Also, we'll thank you and your party to keep away from us and not gum up our recordings with your flipper noises and bubble sounds. Yeah, we'll do that, Tony said. Sorry. Good night. The front door closed. Scotty rose, slid open the window, and went out. Tony scraped a chair in the living room. Rick stayed where he was in case the frogmen had lingered outside. In a few moments, he heard the back door open and close. He tensed, but it was Scotty's voice that spoke. They're gone. I just wanted to make sure. The three gathered in the living room, and Tony chuckled. If I associate with you too much longer, I'm going to become a world champion dissembler. What happened? Rick demanded. Simple and unlucky. The two frogmen surfaced practically under me. It was my own fault because I had moved closer to the boat. I think one of them almost fired a spear at me, but the other stopped him. They invited me to go aboard, and I didn't think it was wise to refuse the invitation. I imagine not, Rick commented grimly. Then what? Naturally, they demanded to know what I was doing. I admitted to overpowering curiosity that got the better of my manners. They wanted to know who I was and why I was on the island, and I told them the truth. Well, partly. I identified all of us. I'm afraid. I told a slight untruth. I said we had found reference to the maiden hand in an old manuscript and were diving in the hopes of finding cannon and other old things which we planned to sell for museum pieces to pay for our vacation. I think they accepted my story. It's a good story, Scotty approved. Just enough truth to make it ring true. They've been watching us, Tony went on. They asked why the plane had gone and why it had come back with only the pilot. I told them Professor Zircon had cut himself and gotten a coral infection, and that the doctor at Charlotte Amali felt they should stay there for treatment. I guess they haven't recognized Scotty and me as the two who stopped Steve's tail. Seems not, Tony agreed. Well, I admitted I was still curious about their activities, since night diving is not common, so they told me a story. The boys waited breathlessly. These gentlemen thirst for scientific knowledge. Tony said with a grin. They claim an interest in ichthyology, but they know less about fish than a cat does. Their story is that they developed an underwater recording device with which to make recordings of fish noises. Since they have some evidence that certain fish make their noises only at night, it is obviously necessary to make recordings at night. So they dive, leave their equipment, and pick it up the next morning. Our diving too close to their gadgets creates false sounds, especially our bubbles. Therefore, we are requested politely but firmly to stay away. Scotty whistled. Rick laughed. That's quite a story, he said. I pointed out the obvious, Tony went on, that it was strange that they should choose a stormy night. Their answer was that the storms upset the fish, and they thought it possible that some sounds might be obtained only under storm conditions. Very interesting, Rick remarked. It's a good story. If we didn't know Steve was after at least one of those guys, we'd probably believe it. Fish noises, Scott exclaimed. 
If they knew we were snooping around before, they'd probably claim that the octopus really did wail, and that they were only recording him. Your gag about screaming squid and burbling barracuda would appeal to them, Tony. The archaeologist chuckled. Anyways, we got out of that one pretty well. I had a little trouble banging my tank. I didn't want to do it overtly, of course. Finally, I managed to get in a position where we were all swimming to the boat, and I banged my tank against one of theirs. But how'd you know what to do? Rick explained briefly. Then he broke into a smile again. These guys are smart, he declared. I like that fish recording story. It's appealing, Tony admitted. I'm almost tempted to pay them another call tomorrow to ask if they've captured for prosperity the hunting cry of the wild sea trout or the love song of the gay sardine. But you won't, Scotty said practically. You certainly came out of that mess with a whole skin, Tony. Rick laughed. He's adventure prone and lucky. How do you beat a combination like that? Chapter 16 The Deadly Spring Gun the storm blew itself up by noon of the following day, leaving an overcast sky and heavy swells. An inspection with the binoculars showed that all was quiet at the frogman's house. Their boat was tied to the pier. They probably recovered the brass ball during the night, or maybe early this morning. The question is, did they take the gadget to the octopus cave? Scotty remarked. Tony joined them on the porch in time to hear Scotty's query. I can shed some light on that. It happens, I woke up at dawn and looked out to see how the weather was behaving. The frogmen were anchored off the eastern reef at the same place. We can assume that they picked up the brass ball and put it back in the cave near the wreck. Rick rubbed his hand over his short hair in a gesture of bewilderment. But what's their game? What do they get from that brass ball? I rather imagine Steve Ames would like to know the same thing. If you boys have no objection, I think I'll spend the afternoon at my midden. What are you planning? Rick looked at Scotty. Dive at the wreck? Sure, frogman or no frogman. There's still a golden statue of St. Francis somewhere down there. After lunch, the boys checked their equipment, being particularly careful because they had not rinsed out the regulators with fresh water after every dive. Their small supply of water, coupled with the odd hours at which the equipment had been used, was the reason. They took a little water from their supply and used it to clean the regulators. The rest of the equipment would just have to wait. Tony departed for his Indian mitten, tools slung over his shoulder. The boys started the compressor to fill the tanks used the previous night, then untied the water witch and headed for the diving area. Scotty scanned the frogmen's house through the glasses, but saw nothing of interest. They anchored just outside the reef and looked for their buoy. It was gone, probably torn away by the storm. We can find the wreck again, Rick said. No trouble. I could find my way around here in the dark. Ha! He grinned. And I have. Shall we take a look at the octopus cave, too? A quick one. I doubt we'd seen more than we saw last night. Our job now is finding out what kind of information the frogmen get. And I don't know how we're going to do that. Just wait for a break, Scotty replied. Come on, let's get into the water. It was cold. The storm had blown in colder water from the open sea. Rick felt goose flesh and wished they had brought their mid-season suits. 
The water was murky, too, because of the sand and silt stirred up by the storm. The murkiness started about 20 feet below the surface. Not until they were over 50 feet down did the water clear again. The light was reduced somewhat by the murk, but visibility was okay. Rick had brought his camera to take motion pictures around the wreck. There would be enough light. Scotty carried the big jet spear gun. It was powerful enough to spear sharks or big barracuda, just in case the frogmen decided to be mischievous again. Rick led the way to the octopus cave, glancing up now and then to make sure they were alone in the water. The little octopus was at his usual position on the ledge. Scotty, spear gun extended, swam right into the cave. Rick followed, holding the camera tightly to his chest to keep it from scraping on the coral. Scotty had his flashlight going, so Rick didn't bother with his own. The cave was just about large enough for both of them. It was a typical coral formation, not much different from the reef outside, except that the brass ball was in the center of the rough floor. The boys examined the cave thoroughly and saw nothing of interest. Rick pushed on Scotty's shoulder and swam out again. Scotty followed. The octopus watched them go. The wreck of the maiden hand was just as they had left it, and the grouper was back in his comfortable cabin. He departed at high speed as the boys appeared. They had agreed to start work after the captain's cabin, and the wrecking bars were carried under their tank harnesses for that purpose. Both were convinced that there was nothing more to be found in the cabin, although the possibility remained that false boards on the floor or walls might conceal the statue. Rick tied his camera to a projection, then took the wrecking bar and looked for a place to start. Scotty pointed to a place where there were boards aft of the cabin they had already uncovered, and they started to work. By the time they had pried off the first few boards, it was time to surface. They went topside and changed tanks, then rested for half an hour. There was no sign of activity at the frogman's house, nor could they see Tony at work on his midden, since the location was hidden by palms. Rick said thoughtfully, the brass ball might be some kind of a signaling device. Yeah, what kind of signals? Rick didn't have an answer to that. Anyway, it's underwater. If it sends out anything, it must be sound impulses. Otherwise, we wouldn't hear it wail. And what good is sound if not for signals? Sonar, Scotty reminded. The boys were familiar with sonar because of the spindrift work on the submobile. Very high-frequency sound impulses were sent out and the echoes were timed and used in other ways. It was the way in which bottom tracings were made by surface craft, and the way in which Navy ships could detect submarines. It could be used for locating schools of fish as well. It could be sonar of some kind, Rick agreed. But what good would it do anyone to stick a sonar device on an island like this? And there their speculation stopped. The question still unanswered. They dove to the wreck and continued the hard work of taking the aft end of the ship apart. When they finally got the new area cleared of rotted boards and timbers, it was only to find a cabin already filled with sand. Rick borrowed the spear from Scotty's gun and thrust it down into the sand. It slid in easily, meaning no obstructions. He probed with it, but found nothing except more sand. Discouraged, he wrote on his belt slate, Maybe no bottom. Floor of cabin may be gone. Scotty nodded, lifted his hands in a gesture of inquiry. Rick thought about it for a moment. Tony had been right. 
they probably would have to remove every board in sight, carrying the ship away piece by piece. But then what? There was a distinct possibility that the statue was somewhere under the sand, and they had no way of removing the sand to see. It was apparent that most of the ship was under the sand, if the remainder of the ship was still intact. But Rick couldn't escape the feeling that Captain Campion would have kept the statue close to him. And that meant in the aft part of the ship, the part that was exposed. Scotty hooted twice, pointing at his watch. It was time to surface. The next dive would be their last for the day. On the surface, Rick sounded discouraged as he said, The cabin we uncovered might not even have a deck. There might be nothing but a mile of sand under it, and there isn't much of the aft part of the ship left to explore. I guess tomorrow we can plan to take the captain's cabin apart, board by board. We'll need Tony and Zircon for hard labor like that, Scotty answered. Notice how quickly you get tired down there? Also, we use air a lot faster when we work. Let's just sort of make a survey this time, Rick suggested. We can probe for any cracks we might have missed and take some overall shots of the wreck. Then we'll call it a day. They followed Rick's plan. He took pictures of Scotty with the wrecking bar prying at likely places in the exposed part of the ship. But Scotty uncovered nothing of interest. In one place, his prying disturbed another moray who demonstrated his anger at the intruders by trying to fasten his needle teeth in the wrecking bar. Metallic clang caused them to lose interest in the eel suddenly. They looked at each other, then turned and swam toward the apparent direction of the sound. At that moment, a distant wail struck their ears. The brass ball. Rick wondered. He had heard no boat noise. The brass ball must be operating automatically. He hooted for Scotty's attention, then pointed toward the cave. Scotty checked his spear gun and motioned for Rick to lead. Rick pushed his camera in front of him and swam rapidly. There might be some outward sign when the ball sounded, something that would tell them a little about its mechanism or purpose. As the cave came into view, he coasted, looking upward. The murky layer prevented his seeing very far, but there was no one in sight. He let inertia carry him toward the cave, then swung upright in the water as he saw that the octopus had moved a little distance from the cave mouth. Instinctively, Rick knew that something was wrong. It was too late to get out of harm's way, though. A frogman emerged from the cave, spring-type spear gun pointed directly toward them. The frogman held the brass instrument in his free hand. Even as Rick hooted a warning, the frogman fired. His spear lanced through the water, directly at Scotty. Chapter 17 Trapped at Twenty Fathoms Scotty writhed at one side, and the fact that the frogman had fired from too great a distance gave him time to dodge. The spear went by, and Scotty lifted his own gun to return the shot. Rick, senses suddenly acute, glanced upward again in time to see two more figures descending through the murky layer. He hooted for danger. Scotty glanced up too. Then instead of firing, he sped forward and thrust the tip of his spear at the frogman's chest. The frogman lifted his hands high. Scotty jerked the man's faceplate loose, then turned suddenly and motioned to Rick. Rick followed, fins diving, as Scotty led the way into deeper water in the direction of the wreck. The frogman who had been in the cave was temporarily out of things. 
His scuba was the type that combined the breathing apparatus with the full faceplate. He could clear the faceplate of the water the Scotty let in, but it would take time. Suddenly, Scotty shot upward. Rick turned, looked over his shoulder as he followed. The second two frogmen were in clear water now, and both had spear guns. Scotty led the way into the murky layer, then leveled off and swam horizontally. Rick wondered what kind of evasive actions his friend was planning, but he followed without trying to communicate with the other boy. In situations like this, Scotty's instincts were dependable. Rick stayed close to Scotty in the murky layer, swimming at his side and a little behind. After a few yards, Scotty dove again into clear water. Rick looked around but could see no sign of the enemy. Apparently, the frogmen had followed and were still in the murk. Scotty shot downward, Rick at his side. The wreck was directly below them. Scotty didn't hesitate. He let his momentum carry him right through the grouper's front door and into the cabin. Rick followed, half expecting to see Scotty and the grouper meet head-on, but the fish hadn't returned. Inside the cabin, Scotty switched on his flashlight, took his slate, and wrote, They'll think we went back to boat. We stay here long enough, they find out we not there, and come back looking for us. Then we go back to boat. Rick nodded his understanding. It was a good strategy, provided they timed it right. The frogmen would assume that the boys had returned to the water, which, when they went through the murky layer, they would examine the boat, then dive down again. At that time, if he and Scotty could time it right, the two groups would pass in the murky layer, and the boys would emerge while their enemies were still descending. He looked at his watch. They only had a few minutes of air left. The frogmen would have more air not only because they entered the water after the boys were already on the bottom, but because they had not descended as deeply. He wrote, Relax. Breathe easy. The less effort they made, the longer their air would last. For a moment, he debated suggesting that they share one tank by trading the mouthpiece back and forth, but that would leave one of them practically without air when they had to leave. He tried to imagine the movements of their enemies. The frogmen would be on the surface now, approaching the boat ladder with caution. They couldn't be sure the boys were not waiting in ambush. Both boys had switched off their lights and were resting motionless in the darkness of the cabin. A little light filtered through the hole near the roof, but not enough to see by. Suddenly, the light was blocked out. Rick reached for his belt knife and Scotty thrust the spear gun forward. Then they both relaxed a little. The grouper had returned. The big fish turned at the opening and backed into his hole. He hovered in the opening, holding his position while he stared out into his watery kingdom. Apparently the fish had no idea that the boys were in the cabin. When it came time to leave and they touched him or hooted at him, he would get the surprise of his life. Even in their predicament, Rick could see the humor in the grouper's reaction. He wondered if groupers were subject to heart failure from shock. Rick returned to trying to imagine the movements of the frogmen. Now they would be cautiously boarding the water witch, one up the ladder, the other climbing the anchor chain. They would be careful, still unsure whether or not their quarry was aboard. He thought he felt constriction in his lungs from the warning signal that his air was running out, but finally decided it was only his imagination. 
Now the frogmen would be aboard the Water Witch, making a quick search. Spear guns ready to fire their lethal shafts. Now they'd be in the cabin, shouting their disappointment. Now they'd be hurrying back into the water, readjusting their face masks, ready to dive. The grouper shot out of the cabin with a flick of his powerful tail, raising silt around them. Rick's heartbeat faltered. The grouper had been alarmed. They had mistimed it. Right now, the frogmen were outside the maiden hand. Chapter 18 The Fight on the Maiden Hand They had only one hope now, that the frogmen would make a quick survey of the wreck and go away. The boys waited tensely, ears alert for any sound that would tell them the whereabouts of their enemy. There was only the sound of their bubbles. Rick pressed close to the opening and peered out. The water that could be seen from the entrance was clear. However, it was only a narrow sector. For all he knew, the frogmen might be right overhead. He backed down into the cabin and pushed his camera into a corner. He could get it later. Right now, he preferred to have both hands free. He wished for a spear gun to double their armament, but the other guns were on the water witch. The wrecking bars were useless, too. It was almost impossible to strike a blow against the resistance of the water. Something scraped outside and the boys rose. There was no doubt the frogmen were at the wreck. Why didn't they just go away? They couldn't know about the entrance to the cabin. Or could they? The moments dragged by. There wouldn't be much air left in their tanks. Rick, wrist holding his wrist close to the opening, and saw that his watch showed one minute of diving time before the shortness of breath would signal time to turn on their air reserve and surface. Time was critical. If the frogmen didn't go away before their air ran out, they would have to surface, if they were allowed to by the enemy. With luck, Scotty would account for one of them, but that would leave two, both of them armed. By this time, the first frogman would have blown the water from his mask and recovered his spear. No, it would be too dangerous for Scotty even to take time for a shot, unless he could fire without pausing. Their best bet was to make a run for it, and depend on their speed. On land, he was sure he and Scotty could outrun the enemy, but in the water, speed depended on skill with the fins and the power of leg strokes. He doubted the frogmen were much faster than he and Scotty, there was an excellent chance that their speed in the water was about equal. He conserved his air, spacing his breathing, taking only enough to keep comfortable. There was another scraping sound, and he knew the frogmen were still around. Were they actually searching the wreck? If so, they might find the entrance. And then Rick suddenly discovered a new danger. Their air bubbles had been floating to the top of the cabin forming a pool under the ceiling. But they had stayed in the cabin for so long that enough water had been displaced to bring the pool of exhausted air close to the entrance, which was only a few inches below the roof level. In a moment, the air would spill out and the rising bubbles would warn the frogmen. He gripped Scotty's shoulder and pointed to the silvery mass of exhausted air that curled perilously close to the entrance. The other boy saw the danger at once, and he wrote on his slate, we go when air does, and he held it in the light for Rick to see. Rick nodded. He drew his belt knife. 
There couldn't be many breaths left before the air spilled out, nor could there be many before warning constriction forced them to turn on their reserves. At this depth, the reserve wasn't very great. He saw Scotty reach for his reserve lever and pull it down. A moment later, he had to pull his own. Something rang like a struck tank, almost directly overhead. The lip of the bubble pool moved from the water motion caused by pulling their reserves. Rick watched it, scarcely breathing. The air pool trembled. A tiny bubble broke loose and sped upward. Rick squeezed Scotty's arm. Then, with a powerful thrust of his flippers, he shot out into the light, right into the stomach of a frogman. He thrust with his knife, and a hand gripped his wrist and twisted. Scotty shot from the hole in the wreck and turned, fins flailing. His spear gun belched carbon dioxide, and the deadly spear ripped into the leg of one of the frogmen. Rick flailed arms and legs, trying to break free of the grip that held him. He saw the wounded frogman fire his spear at Scotty. The boy moved just in time, and the shaft shot right between his arm and side. Scotty let go of his useless gun and grappled with the frogman, reaching for his knife with one hand while he gripped the frogman's wrist with the other. Rick knew their air was running out fast. He felt a knife glance from his tank and heard the ring of metal. He struggled for footing and turned in time to thrust a flippered foot into the stomach of the frogman behind him. Next to him, he caught a glimpse of Scotty and his opponent rolling in the water, and he saw the shimmer of metal as a knife flashed. Arms locked around his throat. He reached backward over one head, and his hands touched rubber. He gripped and pulled with all his strength and felt the man's faceplate come free. The frogman who had lost his mass suddenly threw off the tanks and weight belts and sped for the surface. The odds were even now. Rick locked with his opponent and felt powerful arms drag him close. But the man had more strength than he did. He fought to break loose and couldn't. Then the mouthpiece was pulled away from Rick's lips in mid-breath, and he choked on seawater. Without air, twenty fathoms down. Frantically he fought, locking his air passage so his last lungful couldn't escape. He got a hand free and caught his opponent's hose where it joined the tank. He pulled with all his strength and felt it give. Bubbles rose in a cloud. He would have sobbed if he could. It was the wrong hose. He had only torn loose the exhaust. He groped and found the intake valve, then lifting his knee and thrusting for leverage, he pulled with all his strength. The hose gave. The grip on him loosened. Rick was now desperate for air. He pulled the quick release on his weight belt and felt it drop away. Then he kicked for the surface, frantic with fear for Scotty. Had he gotten free? Had he? His last view had been of his friend locked in combat with the remaining frogman. Bubbles streamed from his mouth as the compressed air in his lungs expanded under the decreasing pressure. He let himself exhale as he rose, fighting against panic and the impulse to lock the remaining air in his lungs. That would be fatal, he knew, and he willed himself to act properly. He kept his fins moving, knowing that if he kept his head, he would make it to the surface. He passed through the murky layer and saw the surface like a wrinkled silver sheet far overhead. Straining, he swam for it, letting out his breath as the pressure on his lungs demanded. There was another boat hull in the water, almost over him. 
He angled away to avoid coming up under it. And suddenly there were forms around the boat. A cry tore from his lips and was swallowed in the water. More frogmen! More enemies! When they were already defeated! <laughs>